My guest this episode is a guy who is incredibly hard to define. You might know him as a singer, your mum and dad might know him off the telly, and your son, daughter, niece or nephew may know him as the author of a highly successful children's book. This is Brezzy. Brez, I've been going to your gigs since 2007. We're here in Wexford now, and I remember you playing out across the bridge in the Riverbank Hotel. And for some reason, I seem to think that there was two gigs, but my friends have told me there was only one. And going back to your gigs then, they were raucous affairs, because there was so much energy in the first album, and it was wild, and everybody was pissed up. Always loads of young ones running them up, because they all fancied you, so it was just wildness. And I remember like, you used to start with Miss Fantasia Preaches, and it would all just kick off. Like, that's 12 years ago now, right? Hmm. What do you think, would 2007 Brezzy have expected... 2019 Brezzy to be in the position he's in now given how varied your career path has been since um, the one thing I don't do with career paths is conform and I think a lot of people we've created this kind of society sometimes where when I was in college everyone was, when I was going to college all the parents wanted you to work in banks you had to work in a bank go to do commerce in college and work in a bank that didn't work out very well for everybody a couple of years later so I don't believe that you should actually set too many kind of strict intentions of what you want to do. Goals are grand, but I, I, I suppose what I'm saying is I kind of, I kind of very, very, I'm very lucky that I was brought up with parents who kind of just told me to do whatever I want, uh, go for whatever I want. Um, and luckily I don't have kids. I don't, not luckily, I don't think I have kids. <laughs> um, so I have no responsibility. So I kinda, I'm lucky that I, can, I have the free will to just to try different things. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And I also don't give a shit if it doesn't work out. I, mm. I'm not one of those people who gets paralyzed by fear. Um, and that's important because in the creative industry, you need to try everything and anything and not worry too much if, it's, if it is or is not a success. Mm, like you've done so much though like without licking your fucking arse like you're a proper renaissance man so like pro rugby player successful musician you own a successful business in Camden Studio been on the TV you're a, a published award winning author and you've now got a masters as well is there anything you're absolutely shit at oh my god I can't dance for shit because you make the rest of look so bad in every I am aspect. the worst dancer part of the brain and so funny because literally year after year I sit and I wait for that call from RT go will you do will you do uh and um, the dancing show, I was like, lads, <laughs> I'm telling you, you don't have the insurance for me to do a dancing show. <laughs> Under no circumstances, it's part of my brain that does not work full stop. And I'm not even going to try. And I get really fucking self-conscious about it as well. Do you cook? Yes, I love okay. cooking. Jesus. I've always cooked. But I had to cook because I eat so much. Um, okay. So when I was playing rugby, I was eating, God, it was like five, 6,000 calories a day. And you get very bored eating pot noodles if you have to eat 6,000 calories of pot noodles. Some people would love it. Uh, but I, I kind of very quickly, once I got to college, learned how to, to cook. And I certainly know how to eat. Going back to that time again in 2007, like when the blizzards first broke with the debut album and stuff, what was the goal back then? Was it like to be number one in Ireland with an album? Did you want U2 level fame? Or was it just to ride the wave as far as you could? Uh, we were just, at initially, uh, I came out of a rugby career not really sure what to do and fell into a music one really strangely. And what we did want, um, we wanted to make a record. I think I think people underestimate the how difficult it is to make albums and how much work goes into making a record. We wanted to make a record. And after that, the one thing we used to always say is all we expect is opportunity. We don't expect an entitlement or we should get anything or should we we got to create an opportunity and the way to do that is to make the only thing we control is to make a record to make it a record that we like and hopefully people resonate with it but everybody all the bands wanted to break the UK that was the first thing that didn't happen and you know if you can go to the UK and try to break it yourself but there's acts there who are huge huge um, push behind them by major labels and even they can't break 
So we were kind of realistic enough to know that we, we couldn't uh, go and waste tens of thousands of euros doing toilet tours in the UK trying to, uh, <laughs> trying to break it. So it was a goal, but it didn't happen. And that's just the reality of music. Where did the name come from originally? I don't know. I do remember it. Like, and I, it's like at the end of the day, labels are very hard to stick or to get rid of. Um, it was actually loading our gear out after I think our first gig in Bambrick's and Mullingar. And my, at the time, my sister's boyfriend, it was piss and snow. We couldn't get anything into the car. Like, and he just went, call the band the Blizzards. <laughs> Fair enough. Because at the time, I think we were called Brave Star or something fucking Christ. horrendous like that. And I mean, the Blizzards wasn't a million miles. But at the time as well, we were doing quite a lot of ska reggae stuff. And we thought it kind of suited the, the vibe of the band a little bit, the kind of the Blizzards. So that's where it came from. We, we named it, couldn't, couldn't get rid of it. And now 12 years, 13 years later, it's still there. Quite a serendipitous kind of moment to base, you know, a, a massive thing of your life on, really. Yeah, what's well, funny, man, I'd say a lot of people who were in bands, if you ask them, can they go back and rename their band before they started? 90% of them will say yes. I'm really sure, right, that I've crossed paths with you before. Um, you must have been down in the radio station or something, because it feels like a dream that I asked you this question, and it was something I always wanted to ask you. And I think you were in a hallway or something, and I just blurted it out like a complete weirdo, and we got into a conversation about it. Have you still got that savage yellow telecaster? Awesome. I have a 1972 vintage uh, all vintage Telecaster and for those who aren't mad into the guitars um, very rare vintage guitars are not cheap no uh, and I that was my dream when was second when we got our second deal or we got our second advance I was like I'm buying a vintage Telecaster because it, it won't lose its its value yeah. and I bought this and it is the literally still in my studio it doesn't leave the studio because it's such an expensive piece okay. of kit and anyone can use it when they're in there uh-huh. but I ain't bringing it on the road uh, how much did you pay for it back then? For vintage Telecaster, I at the time I paid four thousand euro, Jeez. and I'd say it's worth about five or six. Did you Just, go to the UK for? It or did you get it? No, I bought it up in uh, up in in Black Rock in County Loud, the best vintage guitar shop, uh, Danny Hughes. Uh, but what I would say is, the people who go, "Oh my god, that's a ridiculous amount of money to play for a guitar." There's vintage guitars out there that are going for millions oh, yeah. and millions and millions. Because the thing about vintage guitars, if you keep them well, they don't lose their value, they don't appreciate, and if you look after them. You know, there's people out there with 66 uh, Gibson Les Pauls that are selling them for two, three hundred grand. I know a fella found, uh, I think it was a 72 or a 74 Les Paul in a pawn shop in the UK and got it for a bargain. And he's got it like it's worth about. I'd feel guilty. Right? I'd have to say <laughs> to the dude in the pawn shop that, listen, you have to understand how much that guitar is worth. A 74 wouldn't be mad, uh, Gibson. It's like wine. It actually, uh, there's, I'm not there's sure. Yeah, there's specific years. I'm years that I'm were good. I'm kind of guessing. I'm really sure you told me it was a 70s Les Paul. Now, I know it's the late 60s one that kind of tend to appreciate. If you get down so to the 60s, you're talking serious wad. Because the other thing is, if most of the guitars in the 60s were handmade. Mm. And then as, as as it went on, guitars started becoming kind of factory made. Uh, so Fender especially. So if you can find the handmade custom Fender, Tele or Strat, you are making serious money off it. Mm. It's like I spoke to um, Vince Power of Mean Fiddler yeah, yeah, on a previous course. podcast. And he spoke to me about one time what really got him his start in business. He was selling furniture and he found uh, a painting in a pawn shop. And he made thousands on it. It was like a, a Dutch master or something like that. And that was one of his first big coups. Do you know what I mean? So like, uh, well, man, sometimes luck is deserved, you know. After two albums, you went on hiatus in 2009. Like, looking back now, I know you went solo afterwards. Did you have that in mind at the time? Or do you regret going on hiatus back then, given the, the Irish music explosion that kind of came afterwards? No, uh, we had to. Uh, life kind of got in the way. And that's the reality of being a band. And also the reality, uh, financial reality, being a band. The guys are kids. That they raised their kids, they had to find a bit more stable income. 
this happens. You know, the perception is if your music's been played on the radio or you're on the TV or you do this, that you're making serious money, and this is not true. <laughs> and that's just the reality of it. It's good fun. It's a lot of fun, and we loved it. But um, we weren't like, actually. It wasn't sustainable. So, but the one thing I did notice was. I didn't want to go solo. Uh, I had no intentions of doing it, but I was abs- I was living in London and I was fucking skinned. I didn't have a penny. And I was writing these songs for other people and I wrote a couple of songs. I was like, oh, you know, here we go. And they were like, oh, we really like these songs, but you have to release them. I was okay. like, well, I don't want to release them. And they said, well, we'll give you, a, we'll give you a, Sony said, we'll give you an advance if you put this out as a record. So, of course, at that point in time, I had no choice. I had just no money. So I, I took the advance, put a record out, went number one. And the songs did really, really well on radio, but uh, I had really good pop songs, but not kind of songs that I personally... Can't would, Stay Young yeah. Forever, I remember. Was yeah, the, they're, was they're the lead good, single, I think, They're good that? pop songs, but they weren't what I would write for myself if, if yeah. I had a, you know... You were doing it as if you were, like, in a writing camp. Yeah, for, for other people. Yeah, I think that, I remember, I remember writing that one, I think, from a brief for Ollie Muir's. Oh, no, uh, right. But I think Ollie Muir's would definitely not have played it, because I think he's quite touchy about his age, so... Mm. Uh, Can't Stay Young Forever wasn't going to work, but it was actually breaking my fall off that album that was, that was number one radio in Ireland. I mean... Uh, uh, overall radio which was I've never we've never I've never had that at any level uh, with the blizzards even at the height of trust me wow it didn't get as much play as breaking my fall so but yeah good really good pop songs but not songs that I personally thought I'd be playing on stage but in, in no way am I putting them down I just you know I'm I, I, I'm kind of a power pop rock punk uh, 90s kind of rock band music was mm-hmm. it was music I've always loved uh, performing and writing you had an obsession with ABBA as well at one point. ABBA are just... My mum's uh, my mom's philosophy in life that you should all listen to is never trust anybody who doesn't like ABBA. And I think that's a fair assessment of life. Killer bass lines. Oh, ki- killer melodies. And go back to the stuff. People always listen to Mamma Mia and go, oh, I fucking hate ABBA. Mm. Listen to the name of the game. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Listen to songs like that. These are... These, like, listen to the records. These are the best pop writers of all time. These... I don't care what anyone says. These held the winds to um, the Beatles. For pop, mm. for pop music, they were they were that good. They say the same about the Bee Gees as well. I remember oh, yeah. Unbelievable. Hear, hearing a story one time about when Oasis were on tour and Noel Gallagher said they stopped at a truck stop and uh, Andy Bell, who played bass and from Ride, picked up this, like, the best of the Bee Gees, but it was like the pre-disco era. Mm. And I found the bootleg. I think it was like a, just a thrown-together thing. I found it <laughs> online since. It doesn't sound anything at all like you would expect it to. Do you know I, I, I mean? think the Bee Gees, you know, like like, I suppose... They heard disco and they kind of jumped on it. Jumped on it, and I mean, did it really, really well. But you look back at their songs, like you don't know what's like to love somebody. Now that's that's oh, yeah. how to write the perfect love song. How deep is your love? And like, stuff these like are that top well. class songs. Like there was, I saw a video going around online the other day of the three of them doing a cappella on an old Desert Conrad episode. Saw, I've watched that. Yeah, yeah. it is phenomenal. Awesome. Did you find when you did the two solo albums that it was a lonely experience in comparison to when you were with the band? No, because I had amazing guys in the band, a lot of Irish lads in the band with me from uh, Ronan Nolan, James O'Brien. Julie and Greg were the others there, Scottish, Scottish dude and Norwegian girl, Julie, she was awesome. Um, so I got on really, really well with the band. Mm. Um, it wasn't the same. What the, about that when you were recording it? Um, recording was actually quite nice because I the first record I recorded with Jimbo, who's the script producer, he's just had a number one. And me and him, that was our first record to kind of produce together. Um, and I actually really enjoyed the process of working with him because we were working day and night in my bedroom like we we didn't have a studio like we had no money and we put that together and then the band kind of came in and I mean the studio environments changed dramatically since maybe when we did Public Display of Affection which Mm. is it it is like literally it's 
it's carnage in the studio for four or five weeks. Uh, it, you don't do it like that generally anymore. Um, audio kind of recording has moved on to incredible levels where you can do an awful lot of remote recording. The last great algorithm came out mm. last month. First mm. Blizzard's recording, what, 11 years? Am I right? Jesus, that long. Um, I think so. I could be, I'm could. going to say 10 just to make myself feel better. <laughs> Did it feel strange to be back in a writing and recording process given you'd done so much between, say, the solo career and the latest Blizzard's record? No, I mean, like, I, I write all the time. I, 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 I own a recording studio in Dublin, and I spend a lot of my time just going there, sitting there, and half of what I put in there, nothing, I don't do anything with it. But writing, for me, is something you just do. You don't necessarily have to put it out. So writing the album wasn't a problem. Um, the issue, I suppose, is that uh, you have to write an album and songs that other people really enjoy in the band and dig off, and suits them as well, because mm. certain musicians have certain styles and limitations as well of course yeah no no the blizzards are all top musicians um <laughs> yeah no what you do you have to you have to write music that suits what the band do like we i remember at start we, we were putting out some songs and we're like fuck that really doesn't sound like us like i i it, like we had this philosophy to start the album and it was like so you know lads some people actually do stay together some people don't break up mm. not every song has to be a minor key but we do have this at the moment quite big algorithm vibe where songs that do well are generally the ones where they're sad it's like people say that when they break up and they listen to the radio it's like every song on the radio is speaking about, to them it's about me and there's that kind of weird uh, before every line yeah. um, so yeah I, I, I think that's that's now down to algorithms as I say that's that's how we get our music now whereas when I was growing up you used to get suggested music by a guy who came in and goes here's a tape listen yeah. to this shit yeah. um, so I do think the only I, I think Spotify is brilliant. I really do, but I think it's important that people still learn to go and discover music for themselves and different genres that mightn't fit in the algorithm, you know, of of what Spotify gives them. So mm. go out and explore shit, different genres. It's there's so much amazing music out there. It's not only new music from the Blizzard, it's also a new look. I know Louise is in the band the last two years or so, mm. but did she kind of change the dynamic much? Like, were you kind of a little bit more hesitant to say, own your farts on the tour bus now oh, that no, you're no, a girl fuck, in the band? All, we were in farting terms within a week. <laughs> they let them go. Like, that's something that's dangerous to hold them in. Um, I think with Louise, what I, I've worked with Louise in terms of, she's a psychologist, so I've worked in that space with oh, her right. for a few years, and um, she sang with us for a while. So the funny, the funny one with Louise was... I remember saying to her, oh, like, we're, we might need a bass player. And she was like, uh, oh, well. I said, do you play bass? She goes, nope, uh, not really. And then two weeks later, she came back. She goes, I know all your songs. I'm like, no okay, you're in. That's amazing. Yeah, and it's that kind of, it was that kind of mindset of like, fuck it, I'll give it a shot. And she also, she, she kind of holds the band a little bit to account as well. Like, it's good to have that dynamic in the band. And we all get on and like, like, I sincerely don't, and this is a rare thing to see for a band, I don't see how we would ever fight, which is a strange okay. thing to say about a band. I haven't ever fallen out with any of them, you know. So that 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 is, I think Louise has kind of created a, a very zen vibe with the band. That's an interesting thing because you would imagine, say, with the likes of yourself, you have such a large profile outside of the blizzards that I'm not saying the lads would be jealous of it but you know there might be a, a touch of like oh here he goes again do you know what I mean there's that yeah uh, they know me that long as well and they know that like they know the type of person I am the, the reality is the, the, there's perceptions of people and there's people will have this is what I think that guy is like or that yeah. girl's like you, we, none of us really have a clue but the problem with social media is now we think we, we know everybody because everybody lives their life through social media and mm. um, 
with me, I don't really care. <laughs> the lads know me well. They know me. They know that's not the way I am. They know it's part of my job. They know that somebody comes up to me after a show or wants a picture or wants, you know, they also know, like, I do things like I write kids' books, I write books. I, I do many different things. And when you break it down, I think they're quite proud of it. And I think they're quite mm. supportive of it. Um, a rising tide lifts all ships kind of yeah. enough at the music career as well as yeah. other I think that I think they're really cool about it. And, I mean, it must annoy at sometimes It's annoying because, like, you, you know, if you're out for a drink or whatever, uh, sometimes it's nice just to spend time with people and not have to do that stuff but mm. it's part of your job so if you don't like it don't do it <laughs> what's the story with Mullingar right between yourselves the academic your namesake and your mate Niall Horn like is there some kind of Sylvia Young-esque stage school in Mullingar for music that nobody knows about I know in Sweden they have those music programs that gave us like Avicii and Max Martin and you know ABBA but in Mullingar what's in the water what's going on St. Mary's CBS <laughs> uh, drama school uh, no um, there was definitely a lot of drama in the, in the school but it wasn't a drama school Uh I don't know. I think one thing I do. I think I genuinely think it's just coincidence. But I also think something else happens when somebody does well in a town or a regional town. It gives young people the ability to say to their parents, "That's what I want to do," and it stops the parents going, "Well, you can't do that. You'll never. You'll it never." Legitimizes succeed. the career choice yeah, I mean, almost. Yeah, I mean, well, he did it, so why can't I do it? And that that is really important because, as I said, when I was growing up, a lot of my friends were told you can't do this and this is what you need to be and you have to go to college and you have to do this. And the worst thing I think you can do with a young person is to squeeze them into summer into some kind of career or some kind of trajectory that they're not too keen on doing. Um, and my whole thing with young people is to empower them, is to go, listen, like let's find what you love and let's help you be as good as you can be at that particular thing. And I think that's what music is in Mullingar. And I think Generally, everything in Monagar, you have Michael O'Leary's, you have all sorts of people down there. You have uh, uh, Algar now, she's a massive actress, she's doing really well. She's in, like, there's lots going on, but that's the difference. It, it allows young people to say, Well, I'm giving it a fucking shot. Mm. And, you know, if that lanky brick can do it, <laughs> then I can give it a shot. And I think that's good. And I think we've got to support that. And I think parents, as best they can, should try and support that and not force their kids into doing stuff that maybe their kids don't want to do yeah because it's never going to end well no speaking of the academic have you ever heard their track i thought i told you and the yeah. similarities between that and your postcards track um have you ever noticed that i i i, I, I there's a certain mood to it yeah. yeah there's a certain mood to it i think i think uh postcards the the theme of postcards is I mean, it's not a million miles off, but I think it's funny with postcards. It was quite. It was, it was written never to be released. Really, it was written for a friend who lost somebody and never got to say goodbye to them, and saying that that was the that was something that they could never get over was the fact that they didn't get to say goodbye. And so the idea of the song was like we wrote this song as of saying this is this person saying goodbye to you, and this is the way it's going to be, and mm. and it, it was really simple. And I remember Kim coming home from the funeral. And we used to rehearse in Danny Burns and Mullingar at the nightclub. And I went up to the nightclub and I sat down with a guitar and it was as if the song would, had already been written. I swear to God, it was weird. I, I sat down and started singing it. The lyrics just came out. The melody just came out. And it was the fastest song I ever wrote. And wow. I then brought the song to, to my friends. And I, I was really nervous that they were going to go, oh my God, this is why, why would you do this? Mm. And I got this in just a beautiful response to them going this actually has really helped us wow. um, and that's where postcards came from 
that was my probably favorite song off the second album because I remember Trust Me I'm a Doctor had the hype behind it and I remember it was your first lead single off that album and I remember playing it on the radio and going oh the blizzards are back and then it was like postcards it was almost like the sleeper one I don't know how much play you got out or how much success you got out of it but never played I just it was our biggest song and was never played yeah I know we played it definitely in beat anyways I have to give us the props but because that's where I heard it yeah. but I always remember thinking of being the sleeper one on the album and I was like and I really like the melody and when I was I went on a, an academic binge when Craig and the lads first came out and was going down all their EPs on Spotify and I thought I told you came on I was listening I was like going, that reminds me of something it was one of those things it's like unlocking a box in your mind it was like that sounds like something I don't know what it is mm. and I sat there for 10 or 15 minutes and I kind of threaded I was like going, it's an Irish band it's what it's the blizzards and then I was like oh my god postcards yeah, there's yeah. a real similar vibe to it I don't know if it's, if it's the chord progression if it's the melody I don't I, the know chords are si- the chord progression is quite similar and I think it's yeah. got the kind of dynamic the, a similar dynamic uh, but yeah I think it's it's a uh, it's a song for me that actually we're playing tonight here that we've re we've rearranged it because I always felt the original I rushed the vocal in it okay. in terms of the delivery seemed a bit because the lyrics are so important so we have a new version that we're doing tonight that uh, I, I I think is re- is very very beautiful and it's um, it gives you a different kind of f- feeling when you hear it. Okay, you won't be sending the lawyers into Craig and the lads anytime soon, anyway. Oh, here, listen, I tell you what, if I do, it'll be a fifty-fifty. They give it back to me, and we're going to beer. It's mad though how much like since you went on hiatus ten years ago, how much Irish music has changed in that period. Like when I was first on the radio fifteen years ago, the only Irish music that got played on radio was U two. Aslan and of that period say yourselves and Republic of Loose maybe like mm-hmm. that and now it's exploded everything from like the grime and hip hop scenes with Mango and Mathman to like Electronica like there's so much of that around and then like you've got Picture This and even the Coronas are still n- around knocking out stuff like what do you attribute that to the like the burst of Irish music and the creativity that's come in the last 10 years do you think it's just people all seeing other people do it or is it down to technology and the ease of use for me it's down to one thing it's down to the fact that Irish people Irish fans have got behind Irish music in a way that I've never seen before Um, you look at something as simple as five nights in the three arena Mm. picture this this is all because of people who listen and go to live music um, so you can you can say it's Spotify. Spotify certainly has helped. It's created a bigger window. But Irish bands now, what it used to be, if you hadn't broke the UK, they're like, oh, well, you must be you must be shite. Yeah, if you haven't no done the UK, cares. no one cares about you. Um, and you must be just you're just an Irish band, and that's kind of. And you used to we 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 always had a following, so we'd always do like the Olympias and stuff like that. But the idea of doing a three arena for most or any Irish bands apart from the likes of you two back in the day where it was mm. just not happening. Um, so I think what's changed is the mentality of, of Irish lo- music lovers. They're, they're like, they don't care where or who. They're like, I love that. I love that. And, I'm gonna, and then what happened is also Irish radio started getting hungry to do that as well and really, really started, when I say absolutely uh, championing Irish acts, that started that started to push it as well i still think radio has the power over spotify because i i i thought about this like spotify for example you could have i was at a spotify conference and i there was an artist beside me who had like five million streams of their single but couldn't put five people in wheelands Mm. and that doesn't make sense to me if you if you're getting high rotation playlists all over irish radio or radio you can guarantee you'll have wheelands or you'll have the olympia or the academy stuffed Mm mm-hmm because I think radio really drives that organic fan base because with Spotify as well, an awful lot of people who'd be listening to that would be listening passively. Could just be on a playlist that's in the background. 
The Irish have a real um, strange relationship with radio as well in that I think recent figures have shown that out of four and a half million of us, there's like 3.1 million still listen to the radio I love every radio. day. You know? I love radio. I still listen to radio all, all the time. Um, I, 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 I really hope what radio don't do is keep looking at streaming charts to make decisions. I mm. think radio uh, playlisters have to believe in their own ears and their own ability. Um, and I think also what happens is music is very cyclical. Like, like, for example, when we came back, I don't think there was any guitar music on the radio whatsoever. Guitar music was guitar... Guitars almost became illegal. Mm. And people go, well, you know, there's Ed Sheeran. I'm not talking bands like Fontaine's DC, like kind of pop, well, they're not pop, they're a punk band, but they've really catchy tunes. Over. Incredibly catchy songs. When I when we first came out, the music, the only music you really heard on the, the radio was indie guitar music, like Razor Light, like Kaiser Chiefs. You'd never hear that on the radio now. Um, and we kind of fit in that bracket. So I think coming back, we, we if I mean straight up honest, we struggled massively with radio and it's it, it just wasn't the same thing. And we're quite grown up, mature. We understand, the, we understand the scene. We understand music. We've been around a long time. We're 100% if a playlister sends us a message back on, no, the song's shit. 100% with that. That's <laughs> mm. fine. No bother with that. That's, that's on the money. If that's, if that's how they feel, it's the bullshit that yeah. we don't like the kind of bullshit excuses like oh we we get no no just if you're not into it you're not into it yeah no fucking problem yeah. but uh, yeah radio is still for me as a consumer it's what I listen to all day but I find myself listening a lot to like John Creed and people like that like old old school amazing amazing radio when you just put him on for two hours on the and uh, driving home one evening and He's just playing. He could play anything from Tom Waits to fucking Sepultura yeah. in the space of an hour. It's amazing. It's the musical knowledge that's been garnered. Like, oh, like John Peel years ago. Do you know what I mean? just had this it's wealth. John. And it's the stories that come with it. And it's just his ability to seamlessly fall in between. I'll tell you a great John Creedon story. I was in London one night and I was on my own in a hotel. I was like, we're over only over for a night. And it was like a really, really awkward Tinder date going on across the way. And I was like, what? It was like as awkward as a fart in mass. I was watching it going, oh, jeez. But I was listening to John Creedon on my headphones. And I tweeted John. I said, listen, John, I'm here watching a really awkward Tinder day in a hotel. Will you play Tom Waits for me? I was like, a little request. So before he played Tom Waits, he went in this monologue about what this couple could actually become and their kids and stuff like that. And I was going, holy shit. And I walked up to them in the middle of the, the I, had a, I had a glass of wine and I go, by the way, just let you know, lads, they're talking about you on Irish radio. <laughs> and I put the phone beside them and they were amazed. They loved it. No way. I'd love to know where they are now. I'd say they're well gone. You're an entrepreneur of a sorts, Camden Recording Studios. How's that business gone? Good. Yeah. Camden Studios, uh, opening a recording studio just after recession is literally the stupidest thing you could do. I went to college there when it was when post, post yeah, yeah, yeah. They were selling it off and they're going to be offices. They're like, fuck that. We need studios. And studios in uh, Dublin are, are closing down very quickly. And they're also, you know, most of them are colleges. And we kind of feel, we talk so much about the live industry all the time. Also, how important how much money it brings into the economy and it's all that. And it's great. But we really forget that we need that organic, where is music made, where is it recorded, how is it put together. And I'm not talking, we need to, this idea, what I made at my bedroom, grand, but I think there's something about recording studios, there's an energy there, you go in there with a band, a producer, and you go in there for a week or two, it's a special place to be creative. So I always had a dream from the minute the Blizzards made our first records to having something uh, any kind of recording studio, even just a fucking desk in my bedroom. <laughs> and it moved. I, I worked my whole off and bought a lot of equipment over my life 
and bought a recording studio and there we are down the studios and it's flying and podcasting we film there we do videos we do all sorts of stuff you worked for 19 entertainment as well or 19 management or whatever yeah. at one point didn't you how did yeah. that come about um, I was signed to Universal Publishing and the head of Universal Publishing who signed me literally a month after signing me gets um, get offered the top job in 19 and he said I want to bring you with me so 19 is the crowd that are owned by Simon Fuller who Simon Fuller's the boss Spice yeah. Girls and, and the Victoria Beckham yeah. all them lads yeah um, so yeah he took me with them and um, I you know there was a, some experience like Jesus the opportunity was amazing some amazing people uh, that I got to work with and see but um, when you go into something that big you become quite small mm. and um, I suppose a lot of it was just that I spent a lot of my time trying to fight for some form of uh, as I said I never expect anything to be handed to me but it was it was a tough one to get full attention because at the end of the day I wasn't making them the kind of money their other clients were making them so uh, but yeah it didn't end badly but I kind of ended about three years into The Voice. I was like, yeah, I'm out. I'm 19 is now not the not the number I'm massively massive fan of. And like, were they just managing you or were you like like writing songs for people involved with them or what way did it work? Both really. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the the side of it, an awful lot, an awful lot of the artists. I see writing music's a different thing. You can, it's very hard to write for established artists because they generally have their team. So for me, I was very interested in developing artists, so finding someone I thought, or somebody finding somebody and saying, will you write with them for a period of time to get them signed? So I had done that twice, and I got two artists signed with big record deals, uh, and then the label made an absolute hames of it. And I, I, I kind of was kind of kicked to the curb with it, where I would have spent, you know, 12 months working literally for nothing to get this artist to a point, and then being told, oh, by the way, we're bringing in this producer to do it. I'm like, for fuck's sake. Yeah. So yeah, it... It's a, it's a learning curve, and you know, not not something I'm bitching about it because it's just part of my naivety, I suppose, mm. going over there. Is there a defining moment that after you were recruited to be a, a judge or whatever on The Voice that you noticed that instant change in your level of celebrity, like walking down the street? I spoke to Emma Kerman about this, and he told me that he, for him it was when he was on Fair City that he played like a, a villain type character and he'd have people scream at him in the street. Like, did you know, you know, you're always known as Brezzy from the Blizzards. Like, you're a tall guy, you stand out, you know, you would have been stopped for pictures and stuff. But is there anything that kind of nailed him? You went, oh, Jesus, this has completely changed. Yeah, I, I, there's a few things I suppose. I remember one was, I was going down, um, I was outside, you no know, toners there and uh, I was meeting mates. This group of guys across the road. It was like a Sunday evening, the show was on. It was a pre-recorded show, so I went for a drink with my mates. <laughs> the three lads were shouting across the road, like really enthusiastically. Brazzy! I'm like, hey, how's it going, lads? You're a fucking muppet. <laughs> like, at least they're fucking, at least, at least, at least they're, they're watching. At least they watch the show. It's like, but uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, it's, you know, I think with, with The Voice, I remember one really funny moment of, uh, after one of the pre-recorded shows. Now, I'll be very, very honest with you. Um, I should never have been given that gig. Like, really. <laughs> I, to be fair, I was in a band that did relatively well in Ireland. I was hardly, you know, like Keen Egan obviously was in this massive band and then you had like these other, like Sharon Core who sold millions of records uh -huh. and, and me in the corner. But I remember getting a taxi into town after a show and we were all going in for some food and a drink and like the, there was about five of us in the car and it was like Keen Egan it was Sharon I think another one of Sharon's sisters wasn't Andrea and uh, a few other people and like it was packed so the 
back window was open and like Sharon Core was hanging out the window and I just texted my mates and said if I told you when I was 14 that I'd be in back of a taxi with some of the cores and Keen fucking Egan <laughs> what would you think and it was just the hilarity of it and then Sharon Core like having the crack you know and it was just because we I mean, back when we were 14 the cores are like holy fuck we, oh, of course oh, Jesus Christ they're beautiful uh, so being in the back of a taxi going for a pint with the cores with Sharon Core hanging out the, uh, you know of the window having the, having some banter listening to fucking uh, boy um, dirty dancing on the radio like that you don't forget that shit around that time then when the level of celebrity would change you kind of became somewhat of a household name like my man knows who Brezzy is now do you know what I mean because of you're on the voice and my dad who's like 78 now would know who you are did you find it personally hard to kind of differentiate being Brezzy off the telly or Brezzy from the blizzards and being Niall from Mullingar particularly like in your personal life you know? I massively struggled with, with with that side of stuff the voice uh, the fact that I just I just found it really hard because it happened very quickly. Um, like it literally was overnight. Mm. It was a prime time entertainment television show on RT. I I did not prepare myself for the fact that you'll go from nobody knowing you to where people call you up on the street or scream at you, going, "Why the fuck didn't you put her through?" Um, so I wasn't ready for it, and it did overwhelm me. And I'm very I'm very open about that. Um, I got I got used to it, um, but it certainly <clears throat> wasn't a part of of it that I enjoyed um, it was hard and I think the other thing is this people people have this automatic assumption that they know who you are mm. or they own you in some way okay. just because you're on television there's a there's an element of ownership and I remember be sitting in I could be sitting in a restaurant or a bar with a friend and somebody would out actually grab me by my arm to drag me over to the table together I went you would never do that to anybody uh -huh. Uh -huh. but they'd be like well you're on TV and I'm like well that what I'm also six foot six. So I'd be very careful about grabbing some random guy. Very, you know, I, I just found that strange, and I found my sense of boundaries were 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 completely, completely ignored by some people. Um, and some people were absolutely beautiful and stunning, and come up to you and be really nice and go. And and, and I loved that, and I love having a little chat with somebody. And mm. but you know, the problem being is. Uh, somebody has a few drinks and they're not. They can't yeah. hold their West Coast coolers, and they come in and they start getting mouthy. I, I found that I found that idea that they felt that I in some way was part of their property that wasn't enjoyable because and you were in their living room every week. Yeah, and I get I get it to a point, but yeah, it's 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 something that I found difficult. And I'm you know when someone grabs you and you're out having a dinner, maybe from dinner with your parents, mm. you know it's not your job. Um, at that point, especially if you're you know I didn't get to spend a lot of time with my parents, so. Mm -hmm. These types of things. But generally, it was very positive and very supportive and very enjoyable. But uh, I did find the speed of which it happened that very intense and overwhelming. We spoke earlier about perception. And I know that's a big thing. I think you've been quoted before us talking about it. Like, I, I'd imagine it probably happened quite a bit in your, not only in your public life, but also in your private life that people think you've changed because you're now on the telly. But that's, it's their perception of you changes more so than you've changed yourself. Exactly. That's, that is generally... That is it. Uh, I think some people think you've changed or like to think you've changed because it's easier for them in their own narrative to think that that's what's happened. Um, I was always an arsehole, I used to say to the lads. <laughs> I haven't changed at all. Um, but yeah, it is, it is something that people, people will, will say to you. But you know what, actually, it, it doesn't... Like at home in Munningar, there's still that general... They don't give a shite, which mm. is lovely. Yeah. And you, you, can, you can be yourself there and you can... They know where you're from. They know your mum and dad. They know, like, my dad was in the army. 
he was stationed in Mullingar. They'd know him. They know my mum was a music teacher. Uh, they know my sisters. Uh, you know my brother. So they know you, and they know that you know who you are and where you come from and how you were brought up. And I think that is quite supportive. I imagine the media intrusion must have been quite a shock as well. Like pops hanging out in hedges trying to get a shot of you and, and a girlfriend. Like you know? I, 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 that actually only happened once, and it was hilarious. Uh, and did you spot them? Uh, I did at one stage, and like to be honest with you, it's to be to be absolute respectful to Irish media. I don't think it's really their style. Yeah. I don't think it's, it's really a UK what, thing. Yeah, I don't think. You I mean obviously there'll, there'll always be a, a little bullshitty out of context headline, but I generally think the Irish media are quite. They're not going to throw you under the bus on generally unless you deserve it, um, and they can. There's obviously the RC ones who are just trying to make a name for themselves, but generally Irish media are are aren't a bad old sort uh, when you compare them to our UK counterparts. You were once quoted as saying you wouldn't date yourself. Do you still hold that opinion? Oh, fucking, I'm as odd as Christmas. <laughs> Honestly, like, don't come near me. It's gra- no, do you know what it is? It's just that I'm, I'm um, in a, ni- I suppose a nice way, and people who have worked with me will say the same thing. Um, I'm quite intense when it comes to creativity and stuff. Like, I'm always thinking of ideas, because, I mean, you have to think, like, I, music's just a small part of my creative process. I write books, I write kids' books, I make podcasts. Um, I do a lot of stuff that requires kind of creative output. So, I could be thinking about something about the podcast, and literally two seconds later, I'd be like, oh, by the way, I have to do... And I can be very like that. Uh-huh. Uh, and in relationships, uh, I, I, I I don't change that much. I'm very like that as well. And I, I could imagine that could be a right pain in the arse. But um, also in relationships, I one thing I do believe with them is once I'm in them, I fully commit, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm, f- I, I'm I suppose an immensely loyal person, and because I'm that loyal and and I'm, I take on that much commitment, I'm very wary of getting in something that I don't think will be potentially something I can actually, you know, develop. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've never been the type of person who just goes out has a crack and you know, sleeps around and stuff. It was never part of my, uh, kind of my own kind of psyche and conditioning. So yeah, I'm a, you know, if you find somebody that you feel you can commit to and be with and be loyal with, uh, you're very, very lucky and you shouldn't take it for granted. Given the focus and speculation that was put on that in the past, like obviously that would make you all the much more warier as well. Oh, fuck yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like you, you, that's just normal human instinct. You yeah. know, that's not, anybody would this be the same, but, um, I've been in long-term relationships and they're, you know, they're, you know, I think it's, I think the most important thing you can do with any person in the world is, is have a relationship outside your family. It's a big, and I, I, I think it's really important to point out that relationships can be the thing that absolutely make you and they can absolutely be the things that break you in terms of a a bad toxic relationship can be really, really difficult or or a supportive relationship. There's nothing better. So I think if you're in a a, a relationship that's strong, don't always, you know, we have this awful tendency to believe the grass is greener and, oh, geez, I'd love to be, I'd love to be able to go out with the lads or I'd love to be able to go on holidays with the girls and not have to worry about this shit. Like when you break it all down and the pros and cons, if you're with somebody that makes you feel good, you're very fucking lucky. Mm. Yeah, I, I've been in that situation before. I remember an ex one saying to me that she had a friend who was eternally single, and she was like, "That girl would literally give anything for what we have right now." Oh yeah, and you know? and and that's yeah, it's a, that level of intimacy and 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 having somebody that you can sit home and scratch your arse having a curry watching Netflix with. 
you know that's it's an important thing to have kind of companionship that's maybe not your family but then i'm also lucky that i have you know a handful of five or six very very good friends i mean the shit the the work that i do the running the charity the the type of I, i suppose area that i'm worked in academically and personally you need people around you uh you need life jackets and you need a few of them um so I'm lucky that I have four or five people that I, I absolutely, not that I cuddle and have a curry with them and watch Netflix, but I absolutely <laughs> trust them and I'll use them when I need them and they'll use me too. So I was going to say to you is that like, I'm only a few years younger than yourself and I'm already finding that being somebody who's single with no kids, that I'm losing all my friends to family life and children and you know, they're doing their thing and it's just harder to get people to come out anymore. Like you're probably so busy you wouldn't notice that as much. Do you find that kind of I I, I find in the same way we talked about conforming with career and you have to do this and have to do that. I think to be perfectly honest, I, I much rather be in the position I'm in now than be in a relationship where I feel suffocated. Mm. Um I I, I think we can always believe that, you know, oh, my, my mates are having kids now. Fuck, I better have kids. You know, I would, like, literally go out and have a child because <laughs> my kid. It's, it's so silly to think like that. And it's so silly to believe, oh, I'm, I'm hitting 40 now. I've got to get married. I've got to buy a house. I've got to do this. Because that, that just fucks you up. Like, you don't have to fit into any box if you don't want to, if it doesn't feel right and it doesn't follow your instinct. And the funny thing about stuff like this is, if you go out with the intention to find it, you'll never find it. It's a foot. It's, it's slap you in the face one day. You won't even see it coming. Um, but I do believe this idea that you have to be a certain thing by a certain age. and You have to be. It's tiring. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't really think like that anymore. And also, I think I still think I'm in my early 20s. <laughs> I think we all do. Um, nowadays, of course, the mental health campaigning is a massive thing for you. Uh, it's kind of like such, uh, maybe not so for you, but the public's perception of you, it's a, it was a huge kind of off-the-course direction for Brezzy from the blizzards to go in. What was the catalyst in you opening up and being so honest about your struggles? Um, the catalyst was the fact that my struggles were 10 times worse because I had to hide them. Okay. And disguising them took all my energy, uh, making excuses every fucking day with everybody I worked with all the time, that's that's essentially what kind of made it worse. So I finally one day said, I'm sick, of, I'm sick of making excuses about myself all the time. And I'm sick of pretending that there's not something consuming me all the time. And I, I had a panic attack, really bad panic attack before a live show of The Voice. And it was at that point that I said I had enough of it. And I was, gonna, I was going to actually deal with this properly and the only way I could deal with it properly is to get it off my chest that people I don't have to keep hiding it what was the first step that you made in order of making it public telling people but I yeah. told my colleagues okay and then I told my friends um, my family knew I suppose um, I uh, go talking publicly came from a conversation where uh, with uh, where someone said if somebody said something when you were 15 when you were that age, would it have changed anything for you? And I went, of course it would have. It would have made me realize that this is a very normal, shitty thing that I'm dealing with, but a lot of people deal with it. And the only mental health education I got growing up is when a teacher threw a piece of chalk at me when I asked him why Kurt Cobain died. <laughs> so that was my ed- mental health education. And I always promised myself, and I'm ever in a, in a position to help people, young people, have the language to describe how they're feeling and what they're going through. Um, and even a platform that... Not only should I, I have a responsibility to 
um, and that's where it came from. And it, it started as a blog, uh, and that blog became uh, a website. That website became uh, quite a big advocacy charity mm-hmm. that's now building Netflix models for schools. Um, that all grew out of one blog. Wow. Um, and the other reason I did it wasn't just because of me. It's because we have a country and government and successive governments. I'm not blaming this government. They're, they're all, they've all been just as shit as each other when it comes to building systems around mental health. We have a reactive model that is basically wait till we hit a point of crisis before we help people, which is inhumane. It's also inhumane because we don't have the systems to actually help them when they're at that stage. And also, we don't have adequate systems within our education models that can help young people realize what's going on in their fucking heads. And this is not rocket science. And and that's why I'm passionate about it. And I'm not lobbying government. I'm lobbying people. We need to start voting on this shit or we won't change anything. And if you don't think this matters to you, if you ever find yourself in a position as a helpless mother or helpless father and you know that you can't get your child help who is in the midst of fucking darkness and you have to wait two years for that help or drive across the country you will then give a fuck about it Mm. and you will then vote on it but the reality is that's not how communities work we have to care about everybody we have to realize that no mother or father should be put in that position so these are things that I've seen since I started working in the space of mental health and building an organization and the gloves are going to come off very soon because they're not doing enough. We still spend 6%, only 6% of our entire health budget on mental health. So, yeah, I, it's time to not get angry, to get clever. And I think that's where my passion truly lies. Congratulations on the Masters, by the way, the recent completion. Thank you very much. Yeah. Was it a complete head fuck going back as a mature student and sitting in amongst all these? Felt like a creepy old guy, you know, like an old school, the guys that go, <laughs> but that's what I kind of felt like for the first week. And then I realized that was just the imposter syndrome in me and I kind of got rid of that. And then I, I started realizing a lot of people I was studying with were, you know, psychologists. I was like, oh, doctors, well, fuck, I shouldn't be here. Mm. And then I very quickly realized I had a, a very good grasp of what I was, what I was studying because I've been working in this area for four or five years. Um, and the one thing I found about studying the brain, the mind, psychology and mindfulness is I start to realize it's really our environment and our, our, our society and our culture that's overwhelming most of us. Our brains are actually deadly. They're great alarm systems. They, they've kept us alive this far. And I'm really interested now in what's right with people. Uh, what's up there that's going well for us? And really thinking about why and really put my focus on that because I think that can really help people. You mentioned the blog. I remember reading that early on and I was fascinated by your Forrest Gump technique. Run me through it exactly what it was. Um, I used to have what often people would refer to as night terrors. And I would wake up. It was two things. Night terrors or sleep paralysis. And I would wake up at 2, 3 in the morning and I would get this absolutely overwhelming wave of panic. And I'd be lying in bed, staring at the ceiling in the midst of a panic attack. And I remember saying, well, what the fuck is that? Like, it's adrenaline and cortisol flushing through my body. And usually with adrenaline, you need to burn it off. But I was just staring at the ceiling, getting more and more panicked. So I decided one night just to put a pair of runners beside my bed. And the minute I felt that little tinge of panic when I woke up, I fucked the runners on as fast as I could. I had the shorts on already and I was gone and I would run outside till I burnt that adrenaline off. Or I, I, Ironically, the harder I ran, the easier I found to breathe. Mm. 
And one night I, I ran the guts of a marathon um, because I was really, I was just so overwhelmed and I kept running and kept running. And now I've never ran further than 5K in my life, 10K in my life, and I kept running. And the, the chafing and the pain made me stop. And since that particular night, I've never had that night terror again. And I believe it's because they're terrified I'd run another fucking marathon. <laughs> but I don't really care. Um, and these are the things. These aren't things you read in psychology handbooks. This was just me figuring out how, how am I going to deal with this? How do, I, how, do I, how do I stop myself getting overwhelmed? And it was me taking some element of control. So I call it the Forrest Gump technique. I don't think it's a psychological theory or research. So don't go looking for it in a book. How old were you at this stage? Oh, God. I, I experienced night terrors like from... All throughout my 20s, this is, I suppose, early 30s, i say, this when I started doing stuff like this. I used to do other things, like I used to uh, get out and do press-ups or do something, and I used to try burn it off, and then I just started to think, I just have this immense energy all the time, mm. and I have nowhere to put it. Okay. Uh, and I, I, part of me then believes that I went from such intense training as a professional athlete, where you're training two, three times a day, and you're doing really high-end training to not doing any, you know, a lot at all, only gigging. And I felt I had this, all this energy that just was oozing out of me all the time. Your so, body had become accustomed to Yeah. And even if that wasn't true, that my, my, my mind thought it was. So I had to kind of go back to finding a way of burning off that energy a little bit. Because uh, creatively, it's not the same thing. I need, I'm the type of person who just needs to move. And whether that's swim, run, cycle, punch bag, fucking whatever... I got to do something. And I find gigging actually a really great way to do that as well. I get really fucking tired after a gig. No doubt the Ironman training really helped with that as well. Yeah. And I think to be very clear about the Ironman thing, um, if you're using training obsessively to run away from something you do not want to deal with, and believe me, I've seen enough people do that because a lot of people within the Ironman kind of world, they'll do everything except deal with the shit that they're trying to run from. Uh, not, not all of them, but some of them. And I think exercise can become obsessive. And because it's a healthy pastime, we think it's okay. If it's becoming obsessive, it means that you, you don't want to deal with something else. Um, and I always say you can't outrun this. You can't outrun that kind of, th that thing in your brain. But you can fucking change your relationship with it. Mm. If, if you have the bravery and the support and the ability to sit with it and find somebody who'll sit there with you. Um, then you don't have to run and at the podcast Where's My Mind podcast that was the title of one of the shows was we don't we don't have to run we don't have to run and until the only way we're ever going to get to deal with mental health issues is to we figure a society that tells us we don't have to run and we can figure out and sit together and find ways through this shit um, so that to me was the Ironman was also when I did it probably one of the greatest days of my life and I cried for, I think I cried for two hours. Oh, I cried my mother's shoulder for two hours because it wasn't an Ironman to me. It was, it was a different thing. It was, and I remember my mum just tapped me on the shoulder going, would you get the fuck off me now? For the <laughs> she, she had enough. I was that dehydrated from crying, but I, I couldn't stop. It's funny, you just thought about like, you know, switching addictions and things and finding it to replace something. A great um, example of that was, have you read Duff McKagan's book? Yes. Guns and Roses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Switched yeah. out the... The drugs, drugs and, the drink and alcohol. for kung fu or whatever, and yeah. then it was mountain biking and all that. Fascinating dude. And, and and like still to be fair to them in that book, Duff, an awful lot of his friends still now didn't find a way. Scott, you know, Stone yeah. Temple Pilots. A lot of people he would have been very, very close to, Chris Cornell. Mm -hmm. These people who all fought and fought and fought and didn't quite get through and uh, especially with an addiction. And I think he should be very proud of himself because 
you know, in the world they were operating in. Oh, it yeah. makes today's rock stars look like fucking Teletubbies. I was telling that story to people, like three liters of vodka a day, I think it was, and then they told him to stop drinking vodka, so he switched to thirteen bottles of wine. Yeah, that's what he was drinking. You know, and, and they will always get scared when I see someone who drinks that much, but that skinny. Yeah. It's always a bad sign. <laughs> it's a fascinating Kurt yeah. Cobain story as well, isn't it? Where he met him at the airport. Yeah, yeah. Kurt was found dead a couple of days later. He was going to ask him to come to the house and everything. So like, I I find that whole nineties rock grunge era. Um, utterly fascinating mm. and what happened to a lot of people during that time and um, we lost a lot of people a lot of really really incredible musicians because because addiction can get anybody uh, and that's the reality with it it's it's something we need to change our perception of as well addiction is is i've never met an alcoholic who wants to be one <laughs> you know it's generally because they, they're struggling to deal with something else yeah um so yeah i think it's uh, having a different perception of addiction because i myself had struggled with it um and my sister is is like she's worked in addiction for 25 years i have a very deep understanding of it and and how it operates I know you're a massive advocate of meditation as well, and it's something that I've wanted to get into for the longest time. I've tried a couple of apps. I just can't get into the habit. My dad has done transcendental meditation since I was a kid. I vividly remember him going to classes in a hotel and coming down and saying he was going to sign up for it, and he's, he's sworn by it like for a good chunk of his life. What did you take in the initial steps? Did you struggle with it too? or I couldn't. Um, when, I, when I concentrated on my breath, I'd have a panic attack. Um, and... I started working with the guy and he was like, Niall, it's been around two and a half thousand years. There's a bit more to it. And I was like, okay. I said, well, it was actually, to be perfectly honest, when I started studying the Buddha psychologies, that I started to understand why I should meditate. In fact, meditation is not about achievement or getting anywhere or being a good meditator. It's about the complete opposite. Everything in our life is about judgment. It's about striving. It's about getting somewhere. Meditation isn't about none of that. It's about the ability to sit with shit you mightn't want to sit with, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and just not judging yourself. And we're, we are not programmed to do that. So the idea, I, there's John Kabat-Zinn, who would have been the godfather of mindfulness meditation that we would have studied, says there's, there's these kind of golden rules of meditation. The first one's non-judgment. So I don't want to hear this from you. I'm shit at this. No, no, no. Just for this five minutes, you're not outside that. Non-striving, you're not trying to achieve anything with this. You're just trying to sit and notice what the fuck's going on in your body. The next one is the fuck it bucket. Having that ability, the minute you do have a thought, you're not trying to stop thoughts. You're trying to stop following thoughts. So here's an example. You sit down to meditate for five minutes and then you go, I forgot to ring Mary. Oh, fuck. Mary's going to be raging. Oh, Jesus Christ. It's going to be awkward in work tomorrow when I see Mary. Oh, my God. Will I get a pizza later on? Now you're down a rabbit hole. What meditation's about is as soon as you realize you've got to ring Mary, come back to the breath. And if you do that a thousand times, that's a thousand reps. Change how you look at it. So as Westerners, we've always been told that I have to be good at this or I'm terrible at it. We've conditioned ourselves to be like that. So the beauty of meditation is you don't have to concentrate on your breath. You can try to concentrate on your body. You can use your body as your anchor. You can visualize. You can think of a perfect day or wedding day. And just play it out in your head. I think it's a really useful way to get people into meditation. If you if you do struggle with it, it's box breathing. And there's an app you can get in your phone that's box breathing. And you look at it, it's a visual with your breath. And that can be really helpful to get you into the conditioning and what it feels like to anchor yourself at your breath. But meditation is not something that will happen quickly or easily. Be patient with it. Five minutes a day. Two minutes a day. 
consistency to me is far more important than trying to sit there for 50 minutes and not pulling your hair out. I can't do that. And I'm seven years meditating. So because I have an anxious mind, I never sit for more than 25 to 30 minutes. And I'll, if maybe I'll do that twice a day. And now I've done five, six, seven, eight day silent retreats where I don't speak at all. And I meditate all the time. And I lost my fucking mind. But that's the point. That's the point. You need to see what it's... What's it like to sit with this stuff? But here's where it's important. And it's a long answer. Some people need help to sit with that shit. They've had traumas. They've had issues in their life. Something has happened. And that's where good psychological support comes in. Now, meditation is something that we keep throwing out there. Oh, you should meditate. I was abused as a child. Oh, meditation. No. As a meditation professional, my first role would be to pre-assess that person and go, actually, you know what? I think you need some other support first. And then we'll walk, we'll work through that for a few weeks with a clinical psychologist, maybe. And then we'll come to meditation. But a lot of people are now using it as the great panacea that's going to save everybody. It's not. It's not a catch-all. No, it is not. And it's a different, it's not what people think it is. It's, it's a psychological intervention. It takes a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of, a lot of compassion towards yourself. And that's the crew, That's the key with it. Uh, but if you listen to the, my podcast, Where's My Mind? It's a six-week podcast. It's a six-week mindfulness program that tries to teach you the skill. Because it is a skill. And like every skill, the more you practice it, the better you will get at it. I wanted to ask you about the silent retreats. What was the story? Like, where was it? Was it a foreign or was it in Ireland? My first five days of college of my master's was in um, Duro. Or sorry, Tullow in... Um, Carlo, silent retreat in a convent where we we weren't allowed to speak for five days, where you were in silence, where you weren't allowed to read, um, where you took half an hour to eat a chip just to burn fucking time. And my family were, were taking bets how long I'd last. Um, first day was horrific. Second day was worse. Third day was euphoric. Really? Yeah. And that was my first five days of college. Um, terrifying stuff I was more terrified it was in an old convent to be honest with you <laughs> and I do remember it was a very funny moment where we had to go for a walk around the convent and it, it, this convent's also used for uh, addiction uh, counselling and supports and I put my hood up and I went for a mindful walk we used to call them where you just, you just walk really slowly and you feel your feet in the floor and you're really aware yeah become hyper aware of your movements and it's a lovely lovely thing to do and it was a lovely sunny summer's like September summer's evening and there was a there was a there's a there's an estate beside the convent and there was three or four lads sitting on the wall and I had the hood up and they started screaming at me fucking junkie at me <laughs> and I pulled the helm the head down to give them shit and they went fucking ready <laughs> and I, I and I couldn't talk because it was a silent retreat and I, I remember my, my, my mentor kind of looked at me and I just put the hood back up and I just smiled on my face but um, yeah it was it was definitely a Vipassana which is a 10 day silent retreat um, it's certainly a, an experience uh, one I would not recommend jumping straight into without maybe doing a silent retreat for a day or maybe three days don't jump into the 10 day that's like heavy duty crack it's a lot of people go to India to do it and stuff like that and they get out of their environment to do it what you need to learn to do with this stuff we all live here in this world in this country I live in Dublin you need to learn how to find calm in the chaos because we can't all kind of climb up mountains and listen to whale music and you know have beautiful serene environments because a lot of us live in cities or big towns you need to be able to find peace where peace doesn't exist and that's true mindfulness and that takes commitment and effort 
um, and I can happily sit in a bus for 20 minutes and just switch off Calm in the Chaos is a great album name mm. as well I'm going to write that down I was going to use it but I thought it was a bit <laughs> bit too obvious for me <laughs> you wrote once as well about putting mental health on the Leaving Cert curriculum and you spoke to the Oireachtas about mental health in mm. young people as well do you think as a nation we're any closer to implementing something like that across the board given how in vogue mental health is right now I don't know if you read the recent research from Jigsaw, a uh, very, very, very powerful research that came out through UCD Psychology School, which is my where I studied. Um, this is the greatest epidemic facing our young people. It is an absolute fucking epidemic. The, the statistics, and I'm not mad about statistics because they sometimes dehumanize the real story. We are at a serious point of crisis now for our youth. Um, and anyone in government or leadership who are not taking this as a priority, they are not leaders and they don't deserve, they do not deserve their power. Um, and I am not, I have no political uh, leanings, I'm not affiliated to any party. But right now we have great awareness, people are talking, young people are talking. We do not have systems. Our health system is not fit for purpose. I don't even refer to it as a system because systems are meant to work. We have amazing teachers, amazing, amazing teachers. We have some schools doing incredible work. This isn't systematic, though. We should be having emotional literacy, digital literacy, media literacy, mental health. These are all core, crucial parts that should be prioritized in our curriculum. I also think the Leave Insert's a great pile of shite. I do not think it's an adequate description of, of intelligence. I don't think it measures people's intelligence. It measures how good you are at learning. I think we got to be brave as a country now and figure out how do we help these young people who are really, really struggling. And what have we done? We've labeled them snowflakes. Stop labeling young people and start empowering them and start figuring out what the fuck we can do now because we can do stuff, but that's where we're at with it. Um, and I, for one, I'm very passionate about doing what I can do. And I can, there's lots of shit I can, there's lots of shit I can't do. So... Um, I will, I think a lust for life are doing a lot of stuff um, and there's some amazing charities out there and it will not be one charity, it will not be one individual, it'll be a collective response but our government now have to see this as a, a matter of urgency and priority um, and we we got to hold them to account and that's crucial. In light of the amount of pressure that's put on the youth of today, particularly around the time of state exams like the leaving and the junior, certain things like that, have you ever used that commerce degree? I didn't do commerce. I did economics. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. Everyone yeah. thinks it was commerce. I did economics uh, in UCD. Uh, I can't even spell it, to be honest with you. Um, I'm a huge fan of education. I think education is the key and crucial part of society. That's why I'm quite passionate about it. Um, but I'm more passionate about people following the, following what they want to do within education and us serving that. But yeah, no, I've never used my... I have it to a point... An awful lot of the work that we do do around um, with Lust for Life is around economics. And, you know, how can we afford this? How do we build it? How do we kind of equate taxes from a macro and micro point of view? Um, so I'm not one of these people who just shouts, fix it. Yeah. Fix it. I, I'm also not one of these people who just goes, oh, we should just be plowing all our money there. I understand how systems work. I understand how political systems work. I understand how health systems work. I understand how economics works. I am not somebody who just sat and judged people on a TV singing show. And that's why I'm passionate about it. Um, and that's why I'm also quite excited about it. Because I know the shit we can do. And I know 
if there's any group of fuckers that can do it, it's Irish people. We've shown in the last few years we've had two or three massive social movements and we've, we've, held, we've held our shit together when everyone else thought we wouldn't. So I think we can do it, but uh, it's going to take a huge paradigm shift towards where people are put first and people realize one important thing. Politicians are not your boss. They work for you. And we have to get that paradigm shift and stop using the word power when we talk about politicians. They work for you. Hold them to account now. I found it really interesting what Lewis Capaldi did, where he had a, a qualified team of councillors at each of his gigs. Did you hear about this? Yeah, yeah. When he did the arena tour. And I know the Anna Liffey Drug Project do great work at festivals nowadays in terms of, you know, helping people with recreational drug use and kind of calming them down if they're feeling in a bad place or whatever and advising them on the drugs they're taking. I would have thought by now that mental health would have been addressed in a similar vein at summer festivals and things. If Lewis Capaldi's doing it at his arena tour, I'm surprised it hasn't caught on more given how of a wave there is about that. I think there's also the Pandora's Epox idea. People are afraid to go, how far do we go? What do we do here? How do we support? Um, I think we have to realise something and stop thinking that our children, our kids, our youth are, you know, they, I did bad things. You did bad things. We all do bad fucking things. I didn't have people documenting it on a camera phone, but I did bad shit. Um, and y- young people will always do stuff. And sometimes those that stuff can be dangerous. But if you're an adult and you think that that shit doesn't happen, then you're absolutely naive. And we have to open our eyes and ears and understand that. Same with uh, drug addiction. You know, Annalisa, what they're doing is incredible. I absolutely believe in what the work Lynn Rand's doing. I don't believe criminalizing drug addicts is the op. This is a health issue. It's not a. It's not. It is a health issue. Emma Kerwin speaks about it too. It. The only people who say it isn't are, are people who don't fully understand um, addiction. And here's another really important thing. The last ten years, we've had these amazing social movements that I, I believe have massively progressed our society and opened our eyes, but. It was all generally based around equality, which I believe in purely and utterly and always have. I was raised that way by my family. But if you believe in equality, these big corporate companies that had pride flags hanging out the windows was brilliant. It was great to see. But if you really believe in equality, where's your belief in socioeconomic equality? Our country doesn't have that. We have rampant inequality and equality is the best form of therapy. And the work Lynn Rand's doing around addiction highlights this people who judge people who have drug addict uh, who might have heroin problems living on the street you have a lot of you do not know what these people have come from what they they've come from vicious circles of poverty and inequality they never stood a chance from day one and if you actually look at a lot of the psychology the first 1000 days of a person's life can have a profound dictator of their mental health a lot of these people were born into poverty they were raised in poverty and find themselves in dark places we have to look at this differently this is you know and and the reality i say to lynn i was brought up in a regional town in Mullingar, army officer father, music teacher mother. Uh, I was lucky. I was very lucky. Um, But I am also massively passionate about people who mightn't have had the same maybe supports I would have had. So we have to believe in equality across all elements, not just just gender, not just marriage, in in, in all aspects, not just within uh, sexuality. We've got to believe in equality at every level and believe that people who have no homes, who live in hotels, who can't afford to feed their children. If you don't, if you want to give a fuck about equality, you've got to give a fuck about them as well. You're a successful author as well. Uh, me and my mate Jeffrey won an Irish Book Award for you a few years ago. Did writing literature come easy to you, given how personal the subject matter was? Did it just flow, or did you find it difficult? Yeah, I always loved writing. English was always my favourite subject. I've always adored 
just penning shit, <laughs> just writing it and getting it out of my head. Uh, I think English is a stunning, stunning subject. Uh, I've had good, really good English teachers, but I, I, I'm certainly not a good writer. Um, I'm a very honest writer. Um, I don't try to tart it up. I don't do Oprah Winfrey quotes. I don't do as dark as before the dawn. I'm just quite straight, straight talking when it comes to writing. I don't pretend to be anything other than that. Uh, but then, when you hear, when you read a good writer or a brilliant writer, he decided. Uh, Colin Tobin was uh, honoured at the Book Awards on Wednesday night. I was at them, and I just like they were reading out parts of, it. and then Fintan O'Toole was uh, was presenting the award, and he started talking. I went, "Oh my god, this is beautiful stuff!" Mm-hmm. So I, I I love brilliant writers. Uh, I love brilliant writers, and like I, I'm a massive. I read two to three books a week. Uh, I'm a massive believer in reading books. Um, so yeah, I. But writing, I'd like to get better at it. I'd like to get better at creative writing, maybe fiction. Uh, How did the children's book come around? I, like, I have to ask this. This is something that was fascinated me. That Brezzy wrote a children's book. Delayed train from Cork to Dublin. I wrote that book after a conversation with my nephew Billy, who's six. That simple. Wow. Don't set intentions. Also, I was studying at the time. I was doing my kind of research pieces on um, young kids' minds and brains and how they process the world and how they see the world and what happens in their brain. And I was very curious about it. And I was like, you know what? Fucking kids just need, they need little avenues or little vehicles to be able to talk about what's going on in their head. Um, and we always assume with kids, oh, don't talk to them about motion. Bullshit. They're well able. You know, don't start talking about heavy shit now. <laughs> but like, Telling a kid what anger is, what worry and anxiety is, it's not, it's not going to make them anxious. Mm. You know, what's going to make them anxious is if they don't know what the fuck it is. But saying to them, well, say, mummy gets anxious too. Do you know, I'll tell you a little thing you can do when you get anxious. It's a really cool little trick you can do. Kids are like sponges. That's when you talk to them. And that's what the book's about. Uh, the bo- I have two books now and I have another book. Ro- just finished writing a third. And it's just give them an emotion. Tell them that the emotion's normal. And te- teach them how to deal with that emotion. And when they're 15 years of age and that emotion starts playing fucking havoc in their head, they know exactly what it is because they've been talking about it since they were five or six years of age. Mm, it's normalized at all. Normalized, kind of yeah. What kind of reaction did you get from people who knew you when you told them you were writing a kid's book? They weren't surprised, to be fair. <laughs> really? The type of lad I am, yeah. They were like, yeah, fucking, here we go. The next, what's next? Uh, I'd love to tell you what's next, but I don't know. I am that type of person. As some people say, throw as much shit at the wall and see what sticks. But what I say is, you know, sometimes when you set out with intentions to do stuff, you won't do it. You'll get paralyzed by, you know, if you're a failure and all that crap. <sighs> just fucking did it. And and if it didn't work, it didn't work. If people didn't like it, it didn't like it. So, you know, it's, what's the end of the world? But I was flying back from America last week and I fell asleep and I got this little tip in my shoulder and there was a little kid beside me doing the magic moment trick from the first book. And he, oh, goes, wow. he goes, I don't like flying. And he was just doing the magic moment and this, it was with his mum. And I had two seats next to me, and I said, "Well, do, do you know what?" I said, "Sit down there, and we'll we'll we'll, we'll talk about." It. Because I know a few other tricks like my, I can teach you. And he was like, "Oh, seriously?" He was like, yeah, "Are they as good as this one?" I went, "Oh, they're better." And himself and his mother sat down beside me, and I started teaching him these other little mindfulness tra- techniques. But in fucking ten minutes, the guy was asleep. And by the time he got to Dublin, and he's just comfortable. And I, I think it's it's for me that's 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 immensely important to me that young kids find this helpful, supportive, and. Um, can walk up to me on a plane and do the magic moment. That's actually fascinating that that happened. It sounds like the closing scene of a movie. Yeah, it doesn't. It? Well, it did. Like the the like the mother was looking at me. Going, Thank God, she. I think she was bollocks as well. She's like, <laughs> if you fall asleep, I can fall asleep. And they weren't even their seats. Like because it was a half empty plane. And I was like, well, actually, can you move? Because I want to lie across those seats. Yeah. But no, that that's that's immense immense stuff. And and it's also immense that I have a little nephew 
that when he's 20 years of age, I can say there, you know, there's, I wrote them because of you, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I wanted to teach you how to, to navigate this. And I want to make sure when you go to school or 15, 14, 16 years of age, that if you have a fucking problem, you're telling me and I'm going to help you. Uh, so that's the kind of relationship I, I want with my um, nephew. And I think having that, um, having that kind of moral, personal reason for doing this type of stuff, because uh, I said I don't have kids. Um, but I do remember when Billy came along that he changed my life. So I could imagine what it would be like to be a father, you know, and how profoundly life-changing that would be. But... <clears throat> I think it's kind of a it's a it's a type of love that I don't think you can measure or even define. So I think that's that's something I think that's very important to me that I uh, you know people like that in my life that make sure that they're well looked after and that they they can live in a society that if they do feel pain that they can show it. I think there's almost a perception of you as well, Brez, publicly that because you're so outspoken and you campaign so much for this thing that. I don't want to use the word that you're almost cured of your anxiety, but do you still suffer daily from it? Or oh yeah, you? yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not it's not why I I deal with it to cure it. I don't give a fuck about curing it. It's not. I, I all I wanted was the tools to to deal with it to understand what my triggers were. Now I've had panic disorder for fifteen years. I haven't had a panic acute acute panic attack in six years. Uh, I do believe that I've I've controlled that. I do. I don't believe I'll never. I, I that I'll never have another one again. Of course I will. Uh, but I was having sometimes two or three a day. Um, I believe that anxiety is part of the brain. It's how we are. It's how we're built. Uh, if we didn't have anxiety, we'd all be dead. It's a great alarm system. It keeps us alive. And if you understand the neuroscience of the brain, it's literally only doing its job. For me, I made very clear a lot of my anxiety was being caused by who I was around and what I was consuming. And I had to change that. And that's what I did. And that had a profound impact on my life. And... My, my anxiety is utterly under control. I have shit days, generally Tuesdays, <laughs> but that's normal. And we need to be able to understand the difference between anxiety and a, and a shit day and depression and a shit day. Shit days are normal. They're important. You should have them because if you're happy all the time, you're just one of those fucking weirdos that makes everyone paranoid. <laughs> Life isn't like that. It's not a straight line. So just having that narrative with yourself every now and again to say, you know what? I ain't so bad. I don't need to be that. I don't need to have that. Um, and create that narrative in your head and keep talking and keep talking till your brain believes it. Do you find as well that would it piss you off when you kind of sometimes see social media and people, you know, oh, I'm so depressed, oh, my mental health, does that mean, when you know it's kind of just reaching for likes and comments and reactions, like, but we don't know that, you see. Yeah. And I don't take the chance. I don't take the chance. You just don't know. And you don't know what anyone's dealing with, what they've gone through, what they're dealing with or carrying. So for me, I just don't engage, you know, if, if what, I, what I do think it's important is that we reframe this a little bit. Uh, for somebody who was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder in his 20s, uh, that took everything from him, every relationship, every job that stopped him functioning, that made his hair fall out, um, that darkened a lot of my life. Um, that's an anxiety disorder. Mm. That's not anxiety. And it's important to point that out. Um, anxiety, or feeling un- overwhelmed or stressed every now and again, that's really important. Uh, but when it stops impeding in your life, it starts impeding in your life and stops you functioning. And in the same way, a shit day is in depression. When you find it hard to wash yourself, eat, get out of bed, talk to people, um you know you have to deal with it and there's something so it's about reframing it and saying to people 
a shit day is a shit day. Mm-hmm. Even two shit days are two shit days. I think that's where kind of the understanding is lost sometimes. You yeah. see, some people have a couple of bad days in a row where things aren't going their way and all of a sudden they're medicating themselves and however. Yeah, well, any self-medication is not is not something anyone should do. Um, we need to find good doctors, good GPs. And I had a very good GP in Dr. Healy in Monagar that really helped me. And it's just about, it's it, I, I, under no circumstances should we create the media narrative that said, oh, sure, now everyone's anxious. No, no, don't do that. Let's not do that that'll just put us backwards but let's reframe it and just say okay guys that's normal but when it stops you functioning when it really impedes on how you personally socially and professionally deal with the world then you need help and you need support um and there's a fundamental difference and also um i'm massively massively proud about how we're progressing society in terms of our awareness i'm not proud of how we're progressing our systems so that's where your energy should go now start demanding from your TDs, from your senators, whoever the fuck, that you want better for you, for your family, for your friends. Because um, that's the next, that's our next move, our next step now. The awareness is there. Let people talk. Um, and let's let's pick this up now and let's, let's go at it and make sure that anyone listening to this who has kids, that we make sure they're well fucking taken care of if they need it. Last question. I know you said you're not one for intentions and you kind of feel that if you put it out there, sometimes you won't do it. But I asked you at the top of this about 2007 Brezzy and his expectations and would he believe he is where he is today. Where's 2031 Brezzy at in 12 years' time? If we, instead of going back 12 years, let's go forward 12 years. 20, 2031, I am, I am living in Paris. <laughs> My dream to live in Paris and to be that bollocks who writes a book in a coffee shop. Um, I'd love to be in a position, maybe having a family... Uh, I have a feeling I'm going to still be in education. I have, I've got a bug and I want to learn. I want to learn. I want to keep learning. Um, but where I am and where I want society to be, um, with the work that I do, um, I want us to be a far more empathetic society than we are at the moment. I want this fragmented bullshit that we're all dealing with to stop. We need to stop being outraged by fucking everything. It is destroying us, society. It's destroying conversation. It is not progressing us. It's regressing us. And we need to start being nicer to each other. And I think in 2031, I need to be in a position where I'm looking at a society and going, fuck, man, we're doing... Because that'll make me happy. But I'll I'll only be happy if I'm in Paris. And that's essential.